So in my last talk, I discussed how church history can be an aid to us in spiritual formation and ministry faithfulness. In this talk, I want to illustrate how this is the case by looking at a particular theme from church history, the relationship between prayer, revival, and missions. Prayer and revival always go together, whether in the scriptures or in church history. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a verse that has inspired countless Christians to pray for revival. The Lord says to King Solomon, If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. When God's people humble themselves, repent of their sins, and seek greater intimacy with him, he brings renewal to individuals, families, churches, and sometimes even nations. Well, what we see in church history is that this revival often leads to a renewed emphasis on making disciples from all peoples. There's a close connection between prayer, spiritual awakening, and missionary faithfulness, and we see this pattern play out over and over again in the history of Christianity, and especially in the history of evangelical Christianity. So in the next, two, next few minutes, what I would like to do is tell a story that illustrates how this principle uh, played out on two continents in multiple denominations between about 1700 and 1820, a period that coincides with what we now call the First and Second Great Awakenings. Our story begins in continental Europe in the first decade of the 18th century. In the 1700s, Central Europe was divided between Catholic states and Lutheran states. And as a general rule, the religion of the ruler was the religion of the people. But in Silesia, a small state that's now mostly part of Poland, an oppressive Catholic dynasty was forcing all of the Lutherans who lived there uh, to convert to Roman Catholicism. These were a particular type of Lutherans that we call uh, the Pietists, a movement very devoted to personal study of the scriptures, personal prayer, and sharing the gospel with other people. In 1708, Pietist children in southern Cilicia, almost all of them 14 and younger, began holding large outdoor prayer and song services. The, the phenomenon soon spread all over Cilicia and included adults as well as children. The children called their services camp meetings, a term that was famously adopted by Methodists in America about a century later. To make a long story short, with some help from Sweden, the Pietists gained religious freedom from their Catholic rulers and they planted a new congregation in the village of Teschen. They called it the Jesus Church. Now see, you just thought you were spiritual with Christ Covenant Church, which is way more spiritual than First Baptist Church. Well, they see your Christ Covenant and they raise you a Jesus. You can't improve on that very much. So they start the Jesus Church in the village of Teschen, and it becomes the center of a great prayer movement. 
The Jesus Church had between 5,000 and 10,000 worshipers every week and conducted services in the German, Polish, and Czech languages. The Teshin revival spread to other newly formed pietist churches in Silesia, and then from Silesia it spread to other places in Central Europe. John Wesley in England and Jonathan Edwards in New England followed the Teshin revival. It was being widely reported in the newspapers of the era. And they began to pray for similar outpourings of the Spirit in their own lands. Today, historians consider the Teshin revival to be the beginning of a transatlantic awakening that swept across Europe, the British Isles, and North America off and on during the 18th century. Well, in the years following the Teshin revival, many pietists became caught up in a remarkable spiritual awakening that bore fruit on multiple continents. The most famous of these revival-minded European believers were the Moravians, a group of pietists who had fled persecution and sought refuge on the property of a nobleman named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf in 1722. They established a community called Hernhut, and Count Zinzendorf became their leader. Within five years, around 300 Moravians lived on Zinzendorf's property at Hernhut. During the spring of 1727, the Moravians agreed to begin praying for further revival. By the late summer, almost 50 Moravians had committed to pray for one hour a day, one after the other, in a 24-hour prayer chain. Revival soon came to Hut, much like it had in Teshin, causing the Moravians to grow and drawing more evangelical refugees from all over Europe to Count Zinzendorf's property. The revival only deepened the Moravians' commitment to prayer. In fact, they kept the 24-hour prayer chain going nonstop for over a century. It's been called the 100-year prayer meeting. One of the fruit of the prayer revival was a missions revival among the Moravians. Beginning in 1732, Moravian missionaries began to leave Europe to spread the gospel to other lands. Early mission fields included the West Indies, Greenland, West Africa, South America, and the English colonies of Georgia and Pennsylvania, uh, the Moravians focused on evangelizing Native Americans uh, in North America. Moravian, mis Moravian missionaries in Georgia played a key role in John Wesley's conversion and his subsequent revival ministry. Wesley intentionally modeled his reform movement in the Church of England after the pietist reform movements in the Lutheran state churches in continental Europe. Wesley frequently wrote and preached on the topic of missions, and within a generation of his death, the Methodists had become a formidable missionary force. Zinzendorf himself became a missionary in Pennsylvania, where he founded the city of Bethlehem in 1741. By 1791, around 300 Moravian missionaries had been sent out from Hut over a period of about 60 years. That number, 300, was equivalent in size to the total number of Moravians when the 100-year prayer meeting first began in 1727. 
The Moravian Missions Awakening, though little known by Christians today, especially in the English-speaking world, predated the modern missions movement among English-speaking evangelicals by two whole generations. But the story doesn't end there. The same year the hundred-year prayer meeting began among the Moravians in 1727, Jonathan Edwards became the assistant pastor of the First Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. When his grandfather Solomon Stoddard died in 1729, Edwards became his successor as pastor of the leading church in New England located west of Boston. Boston. In 1734, 1735, Edwards's church was blessed with a revival that added 300 members to the congregation in seven months. It then spread to other churches all over the Connecticut River Valley part of New England. This Northampton revival made Jonathan Edwards famous when he wrote about the revival in a best-selling book titled A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. He wrote that book in 1737. Three years later, revival broke out all over New England not just in Edwards's neck of the woods, primarily through the preaching of the Methodist evangelist George Whitfield, who was originally a protege of John Wesley before striking out on his own. During his career as an evangelist, Whitfield preached to hundreds of thousands of people in North America and the British Isles. He was instrumental in the conversions of tens of thousands of people. And secular historians tell us He was the most famous man on this continent in the generation before George Washington became a war hero. Well, Edwards wasn't through with revival. In 1740, he invited Whitfield to preach at his church. Can you imagine that moment, that one Sunday in church history where George Whitfield preaches at Jonathan Edwards' church? I mean, what a remarkable moment. Edwards was impressed with Whitfield's extemporaneous preaching. Whitfield had been preaching from full manuscripts. So it led Edwards to adopt a more simple, extemporaneous preaching style himself. Many people don't know this about Edwards. Nine months later, in 1741, Edwards preached one of the two most famous sermons in American history to a church in Enfield, Connecticut, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And revival broke out in the congregation. Over the next 17 years before his untimely death in 1758, Edwards became the most influential defender of authentic revival in New England and the most famous theologian in the English-speaking world. He wrote a number of books that became famous even during his own lifetime. But not all of them. Even the best of writers sometimes write a book that just isn't as popular as all the rest. One of Edwards' lesser-known works was a 1746 book titled, taking a deep breath here, An Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth. People didn't buy it because they read the title and they said, Dude, I already know what the book's about. (laughs) Edwards wrote the book after learning about a group of Scottish ministers uh, who, a couple of years earlier, uh, had called for seven years of prayer in the hopes that that would usher in the second coming. 
In a humble attempt, Edwards argued for all believers to engage in monthly concerts of prayer for worldwide revival and the conversion of the unreached peoples of the earth. Edwards believed the salvation of the nations was one of the final signs that the millennium would soon begin. His prayer was that the transatlantic revivals that had begun among the pietists and had now spread to England and New England would go viral. Excuse me. That's what happens when you eat the pineapple upside down cake that was right side up. He hoped the same revival would go viral and cover the entire earth. Though its topic was inspiring, a humble attempt wasn't very influential during Edward's lifetime. It did not sell as many copies as the diary of David Brainerd. It did not influence theologians like Edwards's freedom of the will. It didn't define authentic spiritual experience like religious affections. These were all best-selling books that are still read today. Nevertheless, some scholars argue that Edwards should be considered the grandfather of the modern missions movement among English-speaking evangelicals because of how the Lord used a humble attempt in the generation following Edwards's death. When the evangelical awakening began in Britain in the 1730s, few nonconformists were vital participants. Now, the nonconformists were all of the uh, conservative Christians, if you will, who were not part of the Church of England. They didn't conform to the Book of Common Prayer. So think Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, uh, even Quakers would have been in that group who were weird, but we love the yummy oats. <laughs> most, of the, uh, most of the Methodists were evangelicals in the Church of England who were influenced by the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield or a host of less famous preachers in England and Wales. Calvinistic dissenters were often skittish about the evangelical awakening due to class differences between nonconformists and Anglicans, concerns that the, Wesley, well, the Wesleys were Arminians who believed that a true believer could fall from grace, the deadening influence of uh, hyper-Calvinism, an unevangelistic, spiritually dead version of Reformed theology among many of the dissenters. All that kind of goes into the brew of them not being pro-revival. It was not until the generation after Whitfield's death and the final years of Wesley's life when revival finally came to the British nonconformists in what I call a missionary awakening. And this is how it started. In 1784, an English Baptist pastor named John Sutcliffe received a box of books from a pastor friend in Scotland. Sutcliffe was a poor bivocational pastor who could not afford to buy his own books. He had a friend who would send him hand-me-down books he had already read uh, to, his, to this poor bivocational Baptist pastor. Included among the books was a copy of A Humble Attempt. After reading the work, Sutcliffe began to circulate the treatise among his fellow Baptist pastors. Inspired by Edwards, Sutcliffe and his friends issued a call for the pastors of their local Baptist association to set apart the first Monday evening of every month to pray for the conversion of what they called the heathen, non-Christians in other lands, and the coming of Christ's kingdom. The concerts of prayer became popular among the younger pastors in the association and continued well into the 1790s, uh, over a decade. 
For his part, Sutcliffe eventually published a British edition of A Humble Attempt, and he wrote an introduction to the British edition. Well, several of the pastors who answered Sutcliffe's prayer call became early leaders in this missionary awakening among nonconformists. Robert Hall Sr. and Andrew Fuller wrote influential treatises against hyper-Calvinism that were influenced by the pro-revival views of Jonathan Edwards. John Ryland Jr. became the principal of Bristol Academy, uh, a, a Baptist school that sent many of its students to the mission field in the coming years. Samuel Pierce wanted to be a missionary. His health didn't permit it. But he wrote an influential diary where he shared his desires that influenced so many other people to become missionaries. He's been called the Baptist Brainerd after David Brainerd. In 1792, these men and others formed the Baptist Missionary Society, which became the first of numerous denominational mission societies among all evangelicals over the next 25 years. Jonathan Edwards' writings on prayer a generation earlier that didn't even sell well helped launch the modern missions movement in another denomination on a different continent almost 25 years after his death. Friends, only God does things like that. But Edwards was not the only influence. Remember the Moravians. They also played a role in the beginning of the modern missions movement in the English-speaking world through their influence upon a man who many of you have heard of named William Carey. Carey was a poor shoe cobbler who became a Baptist pastor in his late 20s. Now, shoe cobbler is not the fifth dessert that would have been out there tonight with the other four cobblers. That would be disgusting. A shoe cobbler is a person who repairs shoes. Or in my house growing up, we just called him Dad. Along the way, Carey grew increasingly fascinated with foreign cultures through his reading of maps and newspapers. Uh, he read the journals of Captain James Cook, the famous British naval officer and explorer. And soon, God took that passion for learning about other cultures and turned it into a burden for the salvation of the nations. Though Carey was not a part of the prayer call in 1784, it was just a year after he was converted, in 1792, he wrote a treatise titled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. In his short book, Carey argued something that probably every one of you believe, but that wasn't a popular view in Carey's lifetime up to this point, that the Great Commission is a binding generation on every Christian and every generation. The Great Commission is for everybody. The Moravians were included among the missionary role models that Carey highlighted in his book. When Carey helped found that Baptist Missionary Society and then left in 1793 to serve as one of its first missionaries to India, he understood that he was standing on Moravian shoulders, even though they spoke another language and lived in a different place. Carey spent 40 years as a missionary in India, he and his colleagues baptized hundreds of new converts, translated the Bible and other Christian literature into multiple Indian dialects, founded Sarampore College, which is still there today, and helped to outlaw the barbaric practice of widow burning. Uh, when a man would die, the widow would voluntarily throw herself over the funeral fire and be burned alive. And if she didn't do it voluntarily, family members forced her to do it. 
Carey also became the most famous missionary in the world, inspiring believers in multiple denominations on multiple continents who speak multiple languages to take ownership of the Great Commission for themselves. I think it's amazing how seemingly disconnected prayer movements on two continents coalesced into a transatlantic revival and a transdenominational missionary movement. The Teshin revival of 1708 inspired the 100-year prayer meeting that began 20 years later. A relatively obscure book on prayer published in New England in 1746 inspired a prayer movement in Old England almost 40 years later. The 100-year prayer meeting led to a missions movement that inspired William Carey to launch a similar missions movement a generation later. The pebbles had been thrown, and the ripple effects of these prayer movements continued to spread across denominations into the next century. In 1795, missions-minded Anglicans in the Church of England and nonconformists in England came together and formed the London Missionary Society, a non-denominational mission board. In 1807, the London Missionary Society sent the Scotsman Robert Morrison to China. Morrison was the first Protestant missionary to China. Evangelical Anglicans associated with the famous Clapham sect formed the church missionary in 1799. The leaders included men like John Newton, the famous slave trader who was converted, Charles Simeon, considered to be the greatest preacher in England in his lifetime, and William Wilberforce, the politician and anti-slavery advocate. In 1806, they sent Henry Martin to India, where he translated the New Testament into Urdu and Persian and networked with William Carey and the Baptists. The gospel was bigger than denominational divides. The ripples also spread across the Atlantic. Between 1800 and 1810, numerous local missionary societies were formed mostly in the Northeast. Most of them were supporting British missionaries, or they were focused on evangelizing Native Americans. But in 1810, Congregationalists in New England formed a foreign mission society, followed by the Baptists four years later. Adoniram Judson, a Congregationalist who became a Baptist, was the central figure in the formation of both of those mission societies. In 1820, American Methodists established the Methodist Episcopal Church Missionary Society and became one of the mightiest missionary forces of the 19th century. In sum, between 1780 and 1820, entire denominations experienced revival. Sound doctrine overcame soul-deadening error. Numerous new benevolent societies were launched. We've only talked about the mission societies. We've not talked about the Bible translation societies and the widow care societies and the disciple Native Americans societies and the hospitals and the orphanages and the colleges and the seminaries and the many other ministries that were started. And English-speaking evangelicals became passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission. Two unrelated prayer movements in different denominations on different continents using different languages 120 years later every evangelical almost everywhere almost taking ownership of the great commission and saying we must be obedient and it all started when a group of kids said let's pray for mom and dad to have religious freedom
Brothers and sisters, you know the great thing about history? You've all heard the negative side of this. Edmund Burke and George Santayana, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. It's almost a cliche in our culture. It is a cliche in our culture. Well, there's good news too. History sometimes happens again. And knowing how God has worked in the past can help us to ask some key questions of ourselves in the present. And so what I want to do for the next very few minutes is ask you some key questions based on what we've just learned from church history about prayer, revival, and the Great Commission. Are you, brother or sister, praying for revival in your own spiritual life? Do you really want spiritual renewal to love the Lord more tomorrow than you loved Him yesterday? Are you, brother or sister, and church, praying for the salvation of the nations? Praying for your missionaries who are serving other seas, overseas and like-minded missionaries from other places serving overseas? Are you praying that God would save a people from every tribe and tongue and nation like He's promised to do? Is your church setting aside a specific time for focused, even extraordinary prayer for a global awakening through the advancement of the gospel? You may hear that word extraordinary and say, I don't know, Nathan, that sounds kind of weird. Well, extraordinary just means a little more than what you're doing right now, right? There's ordinary and there's extraordinary. Not calling you to, uh, to you know, become weird unless it's the right type of weird i'm just saying are you willing to set aside a little bit of time to pray a little more than you do now specifically for worldwide gospel advance and a great awakening do we long for the lord to move among us as he moved among an earlier generation of evangelicals like the pietists like Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley, like their spiritual children, we should pray for global revival through the advancement of the gospel. We should pray for revival in our own lives, and in our families, and in this church and like-minded churches and denominations of churches. We should long to see that revival escalate into a full-blown spiritual awakening that transforms entire communities through the power of the gospel. Friends, it's happened before. It's happened before. History could happen again. Many of you probably know that John Piper has famously argued that missions exist because worship doesn't. Let's learn from the communion of saints by following their lead and praying for a global awakening of worshipers from among all the peoples of the earth as the Lord fulfills his promise from Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was the Moravians' prayer. It was Jonathan Edwards' prayer. It was John Wesley's prayer. It was John Sutcliffe's prayer. Will it be our prayer? And what will the Lord do with those gospel pebbles 
as they're thrown into the sea of lostness around us and as the ripples begin to spread. Why don't we take just a minute and do some extraordinary prayer right now? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the way that history reminds us that prayer and revival and spiritual awakening are often connected to each other. And Lord, as we learn that from church history, we pray, Father, that we would care about the things that our forefathers and foremothers in the faith cared about as well. Father, we do pray that you would bring spiritual renewal to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray for every believer in this room that you would work in their life in such a way that they would love you and love each other and love lost people more in the days to come than they ever have in days before. And that this would be part of the way that you're working in them to make them more like Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that for me and for my family and for my church as well. And Lord, we pray that you would bring revival to evangelical churches all over the triangle. Father, we are so blessed with so many fundamentally healthy churches in the Raleigh-Durham Cary area, Chapel Hill. And Father, we pray that you would bring awakening to those churches. Father, we even pray for the liberal and dead churches and that you would bring awakening to them because we know you can do it. You've done it before. We pray, Father, that they would start preaching the gospel and that we would be rejoicing to see the spiritual fruit, Lord, coming out of once dead and dying and gospel-denying churches. Father, we pray you would bring a revival to the triangle. And we pray, Lord, that it would spread from shore to shore. And we pray, Father, that it would spread to the entire world. And we pray, Lord, that you would finish your work of ransoming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we long for that day when our Savior returns as a conquering king and when he sets to rights everything that's been broken by the fall and when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he reigns forever and ever and when sickness and sorrow and pain and death are part of history because they are no longer things that we experience in our lives. Lord, we pray for these things. And we pray that you would work in us in such a way and stir our affections in such a way that these would be prayers that would ever be on our lips and that would ever be in our hearts and that would permeate Christ's covenant church and First Baptist Durham and like-minded churches. And Lord, we will give you all the praise and the glory for how you move those ripples to make your name famous among all peoples. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.